0: By the end of 1938, 1939, CIO seemed a spent force, still having failed to organize Ford or the so-called little steel companies or many, many other firms in the mass production sector. So what caused the change? war. War in Europe ended the Roosevelt Depression. The U.S. became the
1: arsenal of democracy. Welcome to Organize the Unorganized, a podcast from the Center for Work and Democracy at Arizona State University and Jacobin Magazine. I'm your host, Benjamin Fong. With this episode, our story takes a turn. I have so far stayed mostly focused on the ascendant period of the CIO, the more heroic phase of generation-defining strikes and landscape-altering winds. In this episode and the next, we'll see the bureaucratization and then fracturing of the CIO. Though the material covered in these two episodes, going from roughly 1940 to merger with the AFL in 1955, spans a longer time period than I covered in the first five episodes, it is less befitting of a podcast titled Organize the Unorganized, and so I'm going to be moving through the middle and late periods of the CIO in much swifter fashion than its early period. As I covered in episode 5, that early period could be said to have ended with the Little Steel Strike in 1937, when the limits of the New Deal order were dramatically illustrated in the brutal repression and failure of the strike. But the CIO continued to grow through the 40s, and it was the war escalation that provided the context for it to do so. This episode will be devoted to the CIO's role in and relation to the war effort and what it meant for this labor upsurge. The first thing that it meant was the departure of John L. Lewis and the mine workers from the federation they had played such an instrumental role in building. As I mentioned in episode two, Lewis bore no strong ties to the Democratic Party, and in 1940 he broke with FDR by supporting Wendell Willkie for president. The key consideration was what the war meant for organized labor. Nelson Lichtenstein and Melvin Dubofsky.
2: Lewis had remembered that after World War I, the the miners had done very well in World War I, but after World War I, there was tremendous repression and uh, anti-labor backlash. The mine union itself was weakened and the drive in steel and packing houses was defeated. And Lewis feared that. He was aware of the mendacity of capital. So in 1940, he supports um, Wendell Wilkie for president rather than Franklin Roosevelt, This was not actually particularly popular, even among the mine workers. He he didn't get much following, but he did that.
0: Lewis, who's a strange character in 1940, basically breaks with his associates in CIO over the 1940 election. Lewis throws his weight behind Wendell Wilkie and the Republican Party. Basically, Lewis says on the eve of the election to CIO members, you have a choice. Vote for Wilkie and me, or I'll disown you. Of course, almost without exception, CIO members vote for Roosevelt and the Democratic Party. So, Lewis. In the aftermath, marches the United Mine Workers out of CIO. He's not welcome in AFL either. So during the war, the UMW and Lewis are on their own.
1: Before his announcement of support for Wilkie, many people thought that Lewis might throw his weight behind the creation of a labor party. Rick Halpern.
3: We think nationally on about politics and the CIO, the CIO funneled working class votes to Roosevelt and the Democratic Party, both locally, statewide, and and nationally. And you could argue, and, and some historians have made this case, that for most of the 30s, the CIO really was the left wing of the Democratic Party. There was a point though, particularly after the CIO drive nationwide slows down in the later 30s, that workers are expecting Lewis and the CIO to form a labor party and to break with the Democratic Party. In fact, leading up to the election of 1940, they're poised to follow Lewis into a, an American labor party. And I remember uh, hearing in a number of oral history interviews with packing house workers in this period, they're gathering the union hall around the radio because Lewis is going to make a nationwide address. And they're sure this is the moment. And rather than announce the formation of a labor party, he endorses the Republican Wendell Wilkie. And in one case, and maybe this is apocryphal, but it gets repeated in the the interview: there's dead silence in a union hall packed with hundreds of workers. And then someone walks up to the radio and throws it out the window. (laughs) Now, this may not be true, literally, but there was an important crossroads that was met and a fork was taken in the later 1930s where to be in the CIO meant to support the Democratic
1: Party. Some historians find the CIO's failure to explore independent political action to be one of its shortcomings. Nelson Lichtenstein.
2: The state is important and the CIO was right to understand you had to have the state on your side, or if new, being neutral, but that can easily lead to a kind of dependence. There was a cult of Roosevelt, no doubt about it. A kind of dependence, or, where where the the union political activity just consists of giving money to, to Democrats, and the Democratic Party certainly back in the in the 30s and 40s and 50s is a completely mixed bag because they got this huge Southern reactionary, anti labor, racist wing there, and if you're strengthening the the Democratic Party, you're strengthening that wing. So there were, you know, thought about a labor party. We should have a labor party in America. And that was discussed and and debated within lots of unions in the 1940s. I think unquestionably the Certainly, the threat of having a labor party, of forming one, if not the reality, and there were labor parties on the local level, is a way of, you know, prodding the Democrats themselves to be more to the left, at least the Northern Democrats. The problem, and, and the problem is, and we see that now more so, maybe even than in the 40s, we have this terrible first past the post winner take all system. We don't have a parliamentary system. And that's really undemocratic and makes it really difficult to form labor parties. And if we had a parliamentary system, we definitely would have had a Labour Party, as you had in Great Britain. You know, they, I think independent political action was another avenue that CIO leadership failed to explore. Ruther toyed around with it for a while. Why they didn't, you know, it's it's complicated, but it was a failure, failure of nerve to a degree.
1: For many of my guests, however, a Labour Party was always a non-starter. Melvin Dubovsky and Eric Loomis.
0: In the U.S., all elections are first past the post. And so if you never achieve a majority or a plurality, you're never going to achieve success or power. I'm reminded of the reply by a worker in New Haven, Connecticut in the 1930s to a sociologist who's asking him about his political sympathies or sentiments, and is saying to him, you know, why in New Haven is there no real socialist party political presence? And the worker turns to him and says, in our daily lives, how often do we have a chance to win? But if I pull the Democratic lever, capital D, I might have an opportunity to celebrate. That is, you know, they they suffer so many defeats in daily life. That is just too much to endure one more politically. And how was the Labour Party ever going to become a real presence in terms of victory?
4: In truth, the number of successful third-party movements in American history is almost zero. And I think people who want more of a multi-party democracy uh, often will sort of push this kind of a line. But within the winner-take-all structure of American politics, I don't know that it really would have been very effective. It may well have led to scenarios by which you do have more radical people get elected to be mayor or congressperson, right? That in in areas that are truly dominated by one political party, that it becomes a way to create a, a difference between the radicals and the more moderate or conservative Democrats, right? There at the local level, I think there's some potential there and, and was then too. It's fair enough that the CIO never really grew to be more than a junior member of the Democratic Party. Despite all the work that people like Sidney Hillman did, despite Ruther really trying to create a Democratic Party that took labor's concerns seriously, like in post war France and England, it didn't happen. Right. And so it's easy to look back and say, well, you know, that was a mistake and that a labor party. It would have made a difference. But again, I'm not really sure that it would have because I don't know how that actually would have operated in any way that would have been particularly useful. Moreover, I don't think that it would have attracted the number of workers that a lot of people think that it it might have, right? That these working class people had multiple interests in their lives. I mean, if you look at the big UAW plants in the late 30s and 40s, this is a lot of Southern workers in those plans, whether both black and white, you know, as part of this migration north. And we're talking about, you know, Southern white Democrats who are moving up there and they have very close ties to the Democratic Party for historical reasons. I think it's projecting a lot to say that, oh, they're there for the picking and that You know, large numbers of these workers would have voluntarily joined a labor party that would have been successful. I I don't really see that. And, uh, you know, I think it's a little reductive when people try to put that because I, I think in the end, if you look through American history, when have unions had success, right? Again, it is when they've been able to neutralize that government business alliance. And that's one thing that having the CIO within the Democratic Party was at least partially able to do not fully, but partially, and it was a big reason for their success.
1: When FDR won in 1940, Lewis handed over the reins of the CIO to his UMWA Lieutenant Philip Murray, head of the Steelworkers. Murray did not have the same reservations about dealing with the Democratic Party, and it was under his watch that the CIO started the first ever Political Action Committee, CIO PAC, to further carry out its interests in the political realm.
5: If you're gonna have good government and laws,
6: That'll help you out. You've got to get the right kind of politicians in office. Boy, you're really paddling up the right creek there, Bill. And that's exactly why the CIO formed a group known as the Political Action Committee, or PAC for short. It's to bring to the working people of our land the true facts about all the men and women who run for public office. That way the workers know just who is going to pass laws favorable to him and just who isn't.
1: The CIO was bound to the Democratic Party, and it was also fully devoted to the war effort, which brought huge membership gains and a normalization of its power and influence in American life. Ruth Milkman.
0: Of course, it's during the war that it really takes off. So the late 30s, that's like the kind of big moment for the whole thing when people say, yes, we can do this, and it starts spreading after that. But it's really when the war leads to the dramatic expansion of manufacturing in the U.S. as the economy is completely converted to producing military goods, that the big numbers come. And then there's the deals that are cut between those unions and the government that stabilize them and allow them to grow dramatically.
1: Here's Melvin Dubofsky describing the consequences of the changed war environment for organized labor.
0: The economy started to boom. Before long, the U.S. would have conscription What happens to the labor market? It tightens. And once again, workers have power. So employers in the mass production sector change their tune. The union organizes Ford. It organizes the little steel companies. It becomes dominant in the mass production sectors. There are firms that succeed in remaining outside of union recognition, but they do so basically by offering their employees everything unions win for their members and sometimes more. So firms like Eastman Kodak, DuPont, and many others provide what could be called their own welfare systems. They provide health care, pensions, all kinds of activities for their employees. They create what amount to company unions that aren't challenged by their workers. They create little realms of their own. World War II lasted for almost five years. And during those five years, the federal government, through the War Labor Board, made employers and their enterprises deal on a regular basis with unionized labor. What basically happened was that four years plus of regular dealing with unions normalized the union presence in the mass production sector. Mm-hmm.
7: was hanging around a defense town
5: one day One day When
7: I thought I overheard a soldier say, soldier say Every tank in my camp has that UAW stamp And I'm UAW too, I'm proud to say It's that UAW CIO
6: Makes that army roll and go Turning out the jeeps and tanking the airplanes every day It's that UAW CIO Makes that army roll and go Puts
7: wheels on the U.S.A.
1: You'll recall from episode 5 that Ford was the holdout of the Big Three in 1937. But as the war effort ramped up, the UAW renewed its efforts to organize the big River Rouge and Lincoln plants at Ford, and in January 1941, the newsweekly Socialist Appeal reported, Thousands upon thousands of men in Ford are now Union. Union men, under Union instructions, have entered the hellish gates of the Ford empire wearing Union caps and Union buttons. Ford is jittery. He has dished out thousands of dollars for newspaper advertisements, and he has tried his best to get public sympathy by blaring about his support of national defense. How different things are now than six months ago. Now the wave of unionism has so engulfed River Rouge that servicemen, Ford's private army of thugs, are offering themselves for sale to go to work for the union. They feel the ship will soon change hands. There are about 8,000 servicemen in Ford, Most of them have criminal records. As befits the petty larceny criminals they are, they hold no loyalty to Ford. Union men now give out leaflets without fear. The plant gates of the Rouge Empire are no longer the portals to an impenetrable anti-union hell. When a serviceman does dare to attack a union man, many union brothers are ready and able to protect their union brother and to exact a little revenge for past brutalities. There's enough steam up in the Ford empire among the men to blow the anti-union lid off for all time. In April, workers shut down River Rouge and Ford recognized the UAW. That same month, Bethlehem Steel capitulated to the SWAC. Membership numbers soared. In one sense then, the US entrance into the war was a clear win for the CIO. Dorothy Sue Cobble.
0: You really would not have seen the rise of big labor and the institutionalization of contract unionism and collective bargaining without the expansion that occurred during World War II and the institutionalization of the CIO. So that's when Ford was organized, for example, not just GM and Chrysler, but they expanded and really had sufficient density in that whole sector to transform the wage structure and the organization of work in some cases.
1: But during the war, its growth and power came at the cost of eliminating that dynamism that had defined its ascendant period. Nelson Lichtenstein.
2: Roosevelt states in the midst of this mobilization for war, then basically says, "Okay." we will uh, ensure uh, in return for a no strike pledge, that is the unions will not strike, in return for that, we will ensure that the unions can gain members in the new war industry and that you have a kind of modified form of union shop, meaning a worker who is employed in an in a industry where the union exists, they will have to join the union and pay dues. Or if they don't, they will lose their job. So that meant that all the unions did, in fact, increase their membership by about 50%. Uh, during the war, uh, AFL and CIO together, partly because of the expansion of existing unions, but also there was this war labor board, which had mechanisms for ensuring that unions were, were kind of recognized in places like Southern textiles or warehousing, which had been very resistant to unionism.
7: I've polished bits in Texas from the ocean to the plain, worked every field in the 48 states and halfway back again. And now we're fighting in a war, the oil has got to flow And the best way to beat Hitler is to join the C.I.O. Across the rolling ocean, the whole wide world around There's union workers fighting to tear old Hitler down Yes, I'm an oil field worker and a soldier in my field I'll fight to save our oil fields, my name is Boomtown Bill I got my CIO card, of which I'm mighty proud. Whatever I believe in, I like to holler loud. I don't like your company union, cause it just don't fill the bill. I'm U.S.A. and CIO, my name is Boontown Bill.
2: Now, it was kind of a Faustian bargain here, because... The other side of it was there was a no-strike pledge, and the strike is the union's ultimate weapon. At the top level where you're dealing with wages, you know, these were being controlled uh, on a national level. But strikes are not just about gross wage levels or something. They're also about the intimate daily interaction between workers and their foremen over all sorts of grievances and problems in the shop, and the the right to have a strike to curb the tyranny of of a petty foreman or something is very important these strikes did of course take place during world war ii they were called wildcat strikes or illegal strikes but both the government and union leaders uh, would say no no stop you go back to work you know we, we've signed the no strike pledge well that created a lot of internal tension uh, more than internal tension kind of systems of, of authority which would continue into the post-war period so it was a kind of faustian bargain there
1: For Steve Frazier and Rick Halpern, this Faustian bargain ended up rigidifying union bureaucracy against shop floor militancy.
8: I mean, there's no question that the war improved the leverage of the labor movement because everybody depended on enormous output to fight the war. And now that the CIO was established in very basic industries, auto, which was soon converted to the production of aircraft and so on, the government needed those unions to help produce that enormous output of munitions and aircraft and ships and and so on. And so that improved the labor movement's bargaining leverage. The CIO was aware of that, which is why they made attempts to improve their own power within the economy, making proposals to co-manage the conversion, say of auto to aircraft production, this idea of co-management, which was a long-term European idea was now and something rarely talked about in America, became briefly a CIO proposal to play to, to have these tripartite commissions, government, business, and, and labor run these industries. That didn't get very far. But still, that they were emboldened to do that is a function of the war and the need the government had. On the other hand, they had to discipline this labor force, that is, the union leadership did. And the war because it demands enormous uh, production, speed-ups, overtime, etc., produces a reaction on the shop floor. You get all these wildcat strikes. Increasingly, the union bureaucracy is at odds with these strikes, has to put them down. And so you have this odd dynamic where they're both policemen of the shop floor and, on the other hand, using their leverage to improve their position.
3: The Second World War, it's a double-edged sword. On the one hand, the agreements that CIO unions make with the federal government allow them to secure contracts where contracts were not forthcoming um, in an open kind of Wagner era period of organizing and bargaining. The agreements with the federal government during the Second World War give them enormous financial clout because there's automatic checkoff of union dues, but there's a price to be paid. When your dues are checked off automatically, uh, and you're a union steward or local officer, all of a sudden it's not that incumbent on you to wander the plant and talk to workers and convince them to join based on the benefits that the union will bring them. And then there's the no-strike pledge, um, which makes sense given uh, you know the war against Germany and Japan. But the no-strike pledge in many industries really serves to erode workers' organization at the point of production. It serves to diminish the ability of workers to exercise power on their own when conflicts arise.
1: But again, workers found ways to exert power, even in these constraining conditions.
3: Now in meatpacking, and this I think is a very important point, although they certainly formally agree to the no strike pledge, they make a crucial distinction between enforcing the contract and going out on strike in violation of of the no strike pledge. And there are all sorts of pretty sophisticated tools of communication that stewards devise to make it clear when workers are to slow down or to stop work, to enforce the contract. And um, this is not just a semantic distinction, enforcing the contract versus going out on strike. I, again, I remember in an oral history interview with someone from a very small plant in Iowa, where he adamantly denied that there were wildcat strikes during the war. And uh, we turned off the tape recorder and we showed him documents from the, the archives in which he is named as leading, <laughs> leading a strike on the killing floor. And we turned the recorder back on and he said, oh, that wasn't a wildcat strike, boys. That was a job action. <laughs> they were chiseling on the contract. <laughs>
6: What he you going to do, Joe, when the war is won? What are you going to do when you lay down that gun? Can't have no depression all over again. G.I. Joe, the C.I.O. has got a plan. We've got a plan, Joe, we've got a plan. Jobs and security for every fighting man. You fight for us, and we'll fight for you, and we'll all work together when the fighting's
1: through. The plan, touted here, included full employment, expansion of the scope of collective bargaining, and broad social welfare reform. But the CIO knew that to pursue this plan, they had to win the battle that was awaiting them at the end of World War II. This led to the strike wave of the immediate post-war years. James Young
7: Yeah, well, the 46 strikes were motivated by pathetically small offerings made by major corporations through this country that have profited enormously, 400% increases in some cases over their profits in 1940. So, you know, what do you do? Well, the UE leadership and and others, the West Coast Longshoremen leadership, which is also lefty, the Mine Mill and Smelter Workers Union. Mostly lefties said, "You know, we ain't gonna take this anymore," <laughs> and essentially pulled off the closest thing to a general strike, a nationwide general strike that this country's ever known. You know, one after another, steel went out, electrical workers, rubber workers, but anyway, eventually all the major industrial unions went out. They had been offered dime an hour increase by the corporations, which, you know, coincidentally all offered the same figure. And they put some people to work, uh, and they being the unions, put some people to work on uh, researching that claim that, of course, we can't, you know, we've got retooling to do and so on, we can't give you more than a dime. And they concluded, as did the government, official government agency that took that on, that said, you know, they could uh, give workers 30% and still make uh, more than they made in 1940, and, you know, in a, another regular time. And so there was there was great solidarity. It was popular uh, shortly after the electrical workers and steel workers uh, settled at uh, 18 cents an hour, not what they hoped to get.
6: The signing of peace in the United States steel strike. Mr. Larkin of Bethlehem Steel and Mr. Philip Murray, president of the CIO, sign and shake. It was good news, all right, and soon the steelworkers were returning to the plant. A solution had been found in America's number one labor crisis. Production was resumed on the basis of a wage increase of 18 and 5 cents an hour, offset by a price increase of five dollars a ton. Yes, the ending of the steel strike was indeed good news.
1: According to Robert Zieger. The great strike wave of 1945-46 had four critical results for the CIO. The very fact of the survival of the new unions was the most important. Other results were less positive, however. Inability to achieve the industry-wide and even economy-wide bargaining structures that CIO leaders favored was a major disappointment. Likewise, the inability of labor and liberal forces to commit the federal government to playing a broad, coordinative role in the shift from wartime to peacetime economic life frustrated industrial unionists. Finally, the timing, conduct, and resolution of the post-war strikes revealed the extent to which the CIO remained less a unified center of industrial unionism than a conjury of disputatious labor unions. Impressive as the CIO's demonstration of power was in the immediate post-war years, limitations and strains on its project were evident. Daniel Nelson speculates here that with stronger leadership, the CIO might have weathered the moment better and been able to pursue the envisioned labor-led transcendence of the New Deal order.
5: The post-war period was a difficult period of adjustment, and they weren't entirely successful in handling that. I would just speculate that if Walter Ruther had become the full-time president of the CIO in the 1950s, they would have had a much better history than they did. Um, but these were organizations with millions of members, and, and the guys in charge were all part-time executives. What kind of a deal is that? So there was problems at the top. And as they confronted these very serious challenges in the post-war period, uh, not only the communist uh, identification of some people, but public Antipathy toward government regulation and impatience with strikes and feeling that labor was too powerful and employer propaganda which which was very effective in the postwar period all of those things were very difficult to confront they they were not new but in the 1930s with the support of the federal government and some of the state governments and hostility toward employers in many cases, those obstacles could be overcome. But after World War II, they were much more difficult to to handle. And so they really needed stronger leadership. And Mr. Murray really wasn't the one for the job. But you can only speculate. But Ruther was by far the most able of the post-war union leaders. And if he had taken over the CIOs as, as a project and brought his characteristic energy and public relations sensitivities to it, they, they might have done better.
1: Walter Ruther had long been a leader in the Auto Workers union, had become UAW president in 1946, and had a wide-ranging progressive vision for the CIO. Nelson Lichtenstein.
2: Yeah, Ruther came out of a socialist family, German socialist family. He'd been sympathetic a little bit to the communists in the 30s, went to the Soviet Union, worked there for 18 months, becomes a leader of the uh, General Motors Department of the UAW and was very imaginative, brought around him a kind of socialist brains trust, very active in the war, was in favor of labor, helping to run the defense industries in, in various ways. Uh, he had a famous plan for 500 planes a day that would be run in a kind of joint labor management way. Then, while he was formally in favor of the no-strike pledge, he could see the damage this was doing. So in 1946, he was very adamant about having a big strike at General Motors, which they did, which had a very progressive and advanced demand. It wasn't just for more wages, but he wanted to keep the price of General Motors' cars stable so that you wouldn't have an inflationary upheaval. And so he was a leader of, of the CIO by the late 40s. Murray was more of a uh, he was there, but Ruther was the dynamic figure. He was anti-communist, unquestionably, but not a not a retrograde, not a conservative. You know, he declared the UAW is the vanguard in America. And when he used that word vanguard, every radical knew what not the vanguard party, you mean? <laughs> yeah. And and in fact that was that was it what he meant actually.
1: But before labor leaders like Ruther could really reckon with and challenge the limits of the post-war years, political disaster came with the election of the first Republican Congress since 1930 and then the passage of the Taft-Hartley Act in 1947. Eric Loomis.
4: The passage of Taft-Hartley in 47 which really makes a lot of what the CIO did illegal or had done in its early days, things like sympathy strikes and such, as well as create a right to work and, you know, force communists out of the unions. And then in 49, when that really happens, that's the end of the CIO
2: moment.
1: Now I'll return to the aftermath of Taft-Hartley and specifically the communist purges within the CIO that followed it in the next episode. In the rest of this one, it's worth reflecting on what the CIO had become during the war. Brian Palmer.
6: What happened with the CIO is that the movement from below, so infused with capacities and enthusiasms of revolutionary organizers, was both tamed in some senses by the Lewis-like leadership at the top, but also constrained by accommodations that it was forced into that the state orchestrated and pushed, and sometimes repressions that the state organized and pushed. So if you look at what the CIO was in 1936-37, and then you look at what it was in 1950 or 52, a very different movement. War and its impact pushed even the, many of the militants into accommodations, no strike pledges, etc., that tamed the movement and disciplined it. So there's a lot going on, but what you're seeing is a movement that has a particular character in its origins and beginnings is going to be structured by capital and the state and elements in its own leadership into a tamer, more conciliatory movement. And the successes of that trade union movement in terms of achieving collective bargaining rights, in terms of achieving better conditions, in terms of achieving basic respectability, are going to mean that a leadership that saw in the 30s the need for change and alternative and transformation becomes institutionalized into a different kind of leadership. that's more bureaucratic, that is less inclined to up the ante, and more inclined to see the victories it's achieved as something that needs to be preserved at all costs. So you get transformation of social unionism, into a kind of business unionism, into an institutionalization.
1: To some extent, the bureaucratization of the CIO in the war was an expression of the underlying dynamics of a trade union. As Nelson Lichtenstein explains here, a union exists to cut a deal, and from the union's perspective, there were good deals to be cut during the war.
2: You can't have... pure uh, consciousness. You need institutions. Capitalism is an authoritarian, hierarchical, organized system. And to counter that, I'm being a Leninist here, you need another kind of organized, structured uh, army. I mean, as C. Wright Mills said, trade union leaders, they foster discontent, and then they sit on it. They mobilize discontent, and then you organize it, and you structure it. I mean, I just think that that's the lesson of labor history. Labor unions are not revolutionary organizations. They are designed to cut a deal. I'm not being cynical here, and I don't think I'm being hostile to the most important liberatory expressions of the working class, but if you're going to cut that deal, then you have to sort of abide by it.
1: Melvin Dubofsky reiterated the contradictory nature of union activity and the perils of bureaucratization.
0: Most workers don't want to fight a perpetual war. Perpetual warfare is an unhappy state. They want to have what amounts to an armistice. And what gives them an armistice and a measure of security? The contract. But as I said, the workers, the unions, the companies are fighting a cold war. So, what happens? in terms of the contract, and almost all contracts will have a no-strike clause. What's the good of a contractual relationship if it can be broken at any point? So what companies try to do is use the contract to take advantage of the workers. When the companies are achieving Success with that, what alternative do the workers and their union leaders have? You can't legally strike. You're covered by a no-strike contract. But what happens if the workers are so upset that they simply walk off the job? The union hasn't called a strike. It's a wildcat strike. What do the union leaders do? A wildcat strike is illegal. So what do they do? They say publicly to the workers, go back to work. And what are they doing privately? Aiding and abetting the wildcat strikers. Because the only power they have comes from the workers. And they don't want employers to take advantage of the contract. So they have to engage in what amounts to a performance, publicly encourage the workers to return, privately assist them in staying off the job. A union is a strange institution.
1: Thank you again for joining me on Organize the Unorganized. Just two more episodes left now. On the next one, I'll finish the story of the CIO, and on the final episode, I'll gather together key lessons for the present moment. Till next time.